Good morning. Before we look at our passage, I thought I would frame our time together by telling you a little story. My guess is that most of you have never heard the name Dustin Salter. Uh, Dustin uh, was an RUF campus minister. When I was an RUF campus minister, uh, and he died a number of years ago. Um, I got to know Dustin when he and his wife Leanne moved to Fort Worth. He became the RUF campus minister at uh, TCU while I was an associate pastor at Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. His family and my family was very close. Uh, he has two boys, Jacob and Nathan, and they were my son Asher's best friends. Kathy is still to this day dear, dear friends with Leanne. And of course, I was very, very close uh, to Dustin. In 2004, my family and I left Fort Worth and we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I became the RUF campus minister at NC State. Two years later, in the summer of 2006, Dustin, Leanne, and the kids piled into a van and they moved to South Carolina, Greenville to be exact, where he became the RUF campus minister at Furman University. One Wednesday afternoon, man, hmm, every time, one Wednesday afternoon in 2006, Dustin went for a bike ride around his block with his boys. Jacob was nine, Nathan was six. Earlier that day, Dustin had purchased a new-for-him used mountain bike. And when his boys got home from school, he said, hey, do you guys want to go for a ride? And of course, his boys said, absolutely. And so they hopped on their bikes and they took off around the block. Mm. No one's really sure what happened, but something definitely happened. Less than 100 yards from their back door, all six foot four of Dustin somehow went flying over the handlebars of his mountain bike. He landed on the back of his head on a manhole cover and instantly, instantly went into a coma. Um, the accident was so serious that when the emergency responders got there, they immediately radioed for a, a care flight helicopter to come in, and a helicopter parked on the street and took Dustin to uh, Greenville Memorial Hospital. The next day, the next day, Kathy and I pulled our kids out of school in Raleigh, and we headed to Greenville. And for the next couple of months, one or all of us lived with Leanne and the kids as Dustin lay in a hospital bed uh, in the hospital. One morning, it was close to Thanksgiving. Kathy and Leanne had spent the night at the hospital. So I was at home with my kids, three kids, and with her three kids, their three kids. I was sitting in Dustin and Leanne's bedroom. 
I was sitting in Dustin's rocking chair, and I began to think, I don't remember the last time I picked up my Bible. I don't remember the last time I prayed. I, I know I must have done that. I was driving back up to Raleigh and doing RUF large group, but I, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't make sense of what was going on. And I realized that I was just spiritually numb. As I sat there in Dustin's rocking chair, feeling nothing, spiritually speaking, I said something that I thought I would never say. I said, God, I don't even know if you exist. Now, why do I tell you that? My guess is that if you're sitting in this room and you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what it's like you know what it's like to have everything you believe shaken to the core of its foundations? And the question I want us to think about this morning is, is that okay? Can Christians have questions, even doubts? Why, why do we have questions or even doubts? And what are we supposed to do with our questions and doubts? If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 7. We're going to look at verses 18 to 28. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people, diseases and plagues, and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When, John messen when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and living in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, 
who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there is what we just read, which is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us even about hard things. Thank you that you have given us through your spirit and the word a way to make sense out of life. And while we can't sometimes make sense, Lord, we can know that you are in control and that you are good and we can trust you in that. Speak to us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the question. Can Christians have questions, uh, even doubts? Now, some of you might be bothered by that question. Some of you might have been taught or Maybe you even believe Christians aren't supposed to have questions. Christians aren't supposed to ever doubt. We're people of faith, not people of doubt. Come on. A number of years ago, I went to a, uh, a youth conference where a speaker said to a room of about 1,000 junior high and senior high students, since the day I became a believer... I have never had a doubt. And if you're a Christian, you should never have a doubt either. How would you have felt if you had been sitting in that room that day? Folks, I've been a believer since 1990. I spent five years in seminary. I've been in some form of ministry for well over 30 years. I've been ordained by the church for 22 years. And I've got to be honest with you. There are days, uh, even good days, when I wake up and I wonder, is this stuff really true? Is this stuff really true? Or am I just a living example of that story of the king who had no clothes? That might make some of you guys uncomfortable. You know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it because of what we see in this passage. I want you to think about John the Baptist for a minute. What do you know about John the Baptist? In Luke 1, we learn that Jesus and John are related. John is maybe six months older than Jesus. In Luke 3, we read that John grew up to be a preacher, but he wasn't a preacher like me or Keaton or Paul. John spent his days in the Jordanian wilderness. 
preaching, walking around, wandering, calling people to repentance, and then baptizing them for the forgiveness of sins. We also learn in Luke 3 that John baptized Jesus. In in another gospel account of the baptism, we're told that John actually saw with his eyes the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descending upon Jesus. And John actually heard with his ears the voice of God the Father saying, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but think about our passage. Beginning in verse 27, Jesus says that John the Baptist was not only a prophet, but up to that moment in time, he was the greatest believer to have ever walked the earth. Verse 28, and I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's quite an endorsement. I mean, when you consider the company, right? Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And of course, it is quite an endorsement when you consider the source. Jesus. And yet, what do you see in this passage? What's John doing in our passage? In spite of everything he knows in spite of everything he believes, in spite of everything he has experienced. Remember, he saw the dove, he heard the voice. And yet in our passage, what is John doing? He is struggling. He is struggling. He he has deep questions, perhaps even doubts. Beloved, this is the first thing I want you to understand this morning. The Bible never promises that you will be free from questions and doubts until one of two things happens. Until one, until you die and go be with the Lord. Or number two, until Jesus returns to the earth and he becomes with, uh, he's with us. And what that means is this. For you and me, we should never be surprised by questions, even doubts. Cornelius Plantinga, in his book, Beyond Doubt, writes this. He says, no honest question is ever out of place in a Christian life. And a Christian faith that asks no questions is often, a Christian faith that asks questions is often stronger than a faith that asks nothing. Tim Keller actually pushes it a little further. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts. Now, I tell you this not to encourage you to doubt. But the fact of the matter is, at some point... Like John the Baptist, we are all going to hit the wall. And we're going to be left wondering. We're going to be left questioning. We're going to be left struggling. And I simply don't want you to be surprised. Questions and doubts do not disqualify you from being a Christian. 
In fact, questions and doubts are a normal part of the Christian experience. Now, what does that mean for those of you who aren't Christians, who are just sort of checking Christianity out? Well, it means this. It means that if you're looking for an airtight, locked-down argument for why you should believe in Jesus, you're not going to get one. Because Christianity isn't a philosophy. It's a relationship. I heard one pastor put it like this. He said, coming to believe in Jesus is like falling in love. People come to Jesus because of some... Because in some mysterious way, they are drawn to them, to him, and they fall in love with the risen Christ. I say all this to say questions, even doubts, are a normal part of the Christian experience. But why do we have questions and doubts? Well, my guess is that there are as many answers to that question as there are people sitting in this room this morning. I mean, all you have to do is think about the, the recent news. Think about Hurricane Ian. Think about the war in the Ukraine. Think about babies in the NICU. So much pain. So much loss. So much fear. Think about the pain you've experienced. Some of you have had to bury loved ones. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have been abandoned. And you know your Bible. You know what it says about God, that he's both sovereign and in the, in, in, in the very definition of love, and yet you struggle to make sense out of or to reconcile what the Bible says about God in the fact of your experience of life in a seriously broken world. Maybe that's not you, but I'm certain that this is. All of us are reminded daily that we live in a world where there are lots of folks who believe lots of things and who don't believe what you and I say we believe. We live in a a pluralistic world, and if you think about it, you can't help but wonder from time to time, how is it that we can say Jesus is the way, the truth, the life? Perhaps some of you know the names Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, brilliant men who believe that Christianity is a cruel joke. They believe and very winsomely argue that religion in general and Christianity in particular is actually dangerous and destructive. That Christianity is one of the religious sources of so many of the wars in our world and genocide and brutality and death. And there are who knows how many other things that can lead us to ask questions and struggle with doubts. Now, here's my question for you. Is there anything that stands at the center 
of all of those questions, of all of the doubts, anything that they all have in common, I think our tendency is to think about questions and to think about doubts as if it is rooted in the absence of belief. But that's not exactly true. Doubt isn't rooted in the absence of belief. Rather, doubt is rooted in alternate beliefs. Let me see if I can explain. Think about me sitting in Dustin and Leanne's bedroom. How could I, a Christian, seminary trained, an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, say out loud, God, I don't even know if you exist. Well, it's because I had certain beliefs about God in the Christian life, certain beliefs about what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, what is fair and unfair that went flying out the window the minute Dustin Salter went flying over the handlebars of his bike. And what that means is this, all of your questions and, and all of your doubts reveal not that you don't believe or have faith in something, but that what you believe in and have faith in doesn't square with what the Bible teaches. And you see, that's exactly what's going on in our passage. Why does John send two of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one to come or should we look for another? For those of you who have your Bibles, flip back to Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness. And he compares himself and his ministry with the person and ministry of Jesus. Listen to what John says starting in verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So let me ask you a question. What, what is John expecting of Jesus? In a word, judgment. And here's the deal. John was right to expect judgment, sort of. John knew his Old Testament. He had studied the prophets. He knew that the day was coming when God's Messiah would come and judge all the peoples of the earth. But what do you know about Jesus' ministry during the time of John the Baptist? Jesus is wandering around teaching and preaching that he has come for sinners. That the kingdom of God belongs to the poor and the hungry and to those who weep and those who are persecuted because of their association with him. And he's performing all kinds of miracles. And here's the thing. He's not just healing Jews. He's healing Gentiles as well. And John is completely confused. He is baffled. He is, he, Jesus is not doing what John expects him to be doing. And the result 
are you the one? Folks, that, that, that's, that's why we struggle with questions. That's why we struggle even with doubts. Jesus does not live up to our expectations. I would go even further to say, Jesus will disappoint you. Jesus will disappoint you. But here's the thing you need to see. What Jesus does or doesn't do is always better than anything you could ask or imagine. It is always in your best interest. Think again for a minute about John the Baptist. What do you think would have happened if Jesus had shown up not as a savior, but as a judge? As great a man as John the Baptist was, he too would have been swept away by the all-consuming wave of God's righteous judgment and wrath. Why? Well, because like you and me, John was a sinner. Sure, he was a prophet. Sure, he was the greatest person ever born. But John was a sinner. And the wages of sin is death, and Jesus does not grade on a curve. What does that teach us? Jesus didn't do what John wanted. Jesus did what John needed. And Jesus does the exact same thing for us. In a letter written in the late 1700s, John Newton wrote this. He said, everything is needful that he, God, sends. Nothing can be needful that he, God, withholds. Folks, Jesus most definitely will not give you everything you want, but he will always give you everything you need. So, what are we to do with our questions? What are we to do with those nagging doubts? If you're like me, I expect most of you don't really know what to do with your questions or with your doubts. And so when questions and doubts arise, you either try to ignore them or deny them or you try to whip up faith. You try to drown them out. Now here's the question, why do we do that? I would tell you it's because functionally we believe that we are saved by our faith rather than Jesus. We place our faith in our faith rather than in the person and work of Jesus. We live as if our act of faith saves us rather than Jesus who is the object of our faith. And the consequence, we live in denial of our questions and our doubts And when they get the best of us, we wonder if we are really Christians. But what does John do? Folks, this is so important. Because I think this is the difference between struggling with questions and doubts and unbelief. What does John do? He takes his doubts to Jesus. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What you need to see 
is that doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Doubt and unbelief might ask the same questions, but doubters turn to God while unbelievers turn away from God. When they don't understand God or what God is doing, doubters turn to God because they know that their only hope isn't in the strength of their faith, but rather in the strength of the faithfulness of Jesus. Sadly, when God doesn't do what unbelievers want, they turn away from God and they live their lives as if there is no God. How does Jesus respond to our questions and doubts? After graduating from seminary in 1995, I began to interview for different church positions. Uh, At the same time, my wife Kathy was kind of going through a crisis of faith, and she came to me as her husband and as someone who is uh, aspires to be a pastor, and she shared her questions. She shared her struggles with me. Can you guess what I did? <laughs> this is just so pitiful. I looked at her, and in my most self-righteous and sanctimonious tone, I said, You can't ask questions like that. I'm looking for a job. Is that how Jesus responds to our questions and doubts? Is that how he responds to John's questions and doubts? Of course not. Jesus doesn't give John's disciples a verbal tongue lashing. He doesn't get angry with John. He doesn't explode. He isn't surprised. He he doesn't throw his hands up in the air and say, well, you can tell John. Instead, beginning in verse 21, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And second, and he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What is Jesus doing? When Jesus says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard, Jesus isn't just giving John a report of his activities. Jesus is actually alluding to the passage that Mark read to us earlier This morning, a passage that describes the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God and the blessings that he will bring. What Jesus is saying to John is, yes, John, I am the one. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the one you are looking for. But he's also saying something else. You see, in each one of these passages in Isaiah, that Jesus is alluding to, there is not only the promise of blessing, but there is the promise of judgment. As Mark read to us earlier, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. But listen to what Jesus said, or what Isaiah said a verse earlier. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. 
with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. John expects vengeance. John expects the recompense of God. But you see, what Jesus is saying in his silence is what he says elsewhere explicitly, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus answered John's question the way he did Because as we learn in the rest of the gospel, Jesus didn't come to be a judge. He came to be judged. On the cross, Jesus experienced the full judgment of God, the white hot wrath of God that those of you who look to him in faith deserve. Why? So that we could experience the full blessings of God. So that we could be not just citizens of the kingdom of God, but so that we would be adopted sons and daughters of the king of the kingdom of God. And there's one last thing that I need to point out before we come to the table. In verse 23, Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is acknowledging that at times you and I are going to struggle to make sense of him. Like John the Baptist, we are going to wonder in our heart of hearts, are you the one or should we look for another? And he says, blessed are you who do not walk away from me when I don't live up to your expectations. Because what I'm doing even though you might not understand, is far better than, better than anything you could ever ask or imagine. In Mark 9, we read the story of a father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus to be healed. After the disciples tried and failed, the father turned to Jesus and he said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responded, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And you remember what the father said, I believe, help my unbelief. What did Jesus do? Well, when you work out all your questions and doubts, come back to me and I'll heal your son. No. No. Jesus, he healed that boy, and he gave him back to his dad. This is how Jesus responds to those who turn towards him with their questions, with their struggles, with their doubts. Here's the question for you this morning. What is your posture before God when you struggle with questions? even with doubts. What do you do when you face questions and doubts? Beloved, what this passage teaches us is that there is super abounding grace for those who turn toward Jesus and cry out 
with that father, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm so thankful for this passage. Because it it makes room for people like me. It makes room for people like us. Who believe, but who struggle uh, with unbelief. Lord, we do want to believe. I pray it every day. Help me to believe. Help us to believe. Believe that you are who you declare yourself to be, that you are good, that you are gracious, that you love us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will complete the good work that you've begun in us. And even the things that we're doing right now is a fruit of your work in our hearts. Help us to believe that. To know it. Help us to trust in your life and death rather than in our own sense of how strong or how weak our faith is at any given moment. Thank you that you give us your word and thank you that you give us your table which is where people like us can come. We pray, Father, that you would take this bread and this wine. They're just things we got at the supermarket. We pray that you would use them to feed us, to grow us, to comfort us, that we might know more deeply in our hearts when we leave this room today that you are who you say you are and that you will never leave us or forsake us. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. We praise you, Holy Spirit. Amen.